Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Cheryl Renee Gooch, author of Hensonville's Heroes, Black Civil War Soldiers of Chester County, Pennsylvania. Cheryl Renee Gooch, author of Hinsonville's Heroes, Black Civil War Soldiers of Chester County, Pennsylvania. When did you first learn about Hinsonville? In 2012, when I uh, visited Lincoln University and happened upon this historic church, Hosanna AUMP Church and Cemetery, which is located within yards of the, the historic ornate um, entrance to Lincoln University. And from Baltimore Pike, where this is located, it appears to be a part of Lincoln University's campus. So I ask, what is the relationship of um, this church and this cemetery to Lincoln University? Is there a relationship? Oh, there is. And um, that began my quest. I was insatiably curious. And I first uh, learned that Hensonville, which was um, a free community of color uh, that was settled in the 1830s by uh, African Americans who began purchasing land uh, long before Ashman Institute, later renamed Lincoln University, was even an idea. So this was an intriguing community uh, situated five, six miles from Maryland, which was then a slave state. And free people began settling there and purchasing land in the 1830s. Well, it's, it's intriguing uh, in terms of the relationships because the um, Hosanna Church, which is still there, was the spiritual and the social center of Hensonville. The residents there were active in the abolition of slavery and were uh, partnering at that time with uh, really a complex network of abolitionists, including nearby Quaker communities who supported them in their aid to freedom seekers. Uh, members of Hosanna and residents of Hensonville were co-founders of Ashman Institute. In fact, the first students to uh, enroll at uh, Ashman Institute and to graduate were members of Hosanna Church. So I began this. This is intriguing. So there's a lot of uh, intersection and, and relationship. The interesting story, I think, about Hensonville in its relationship to Lincoln University is that those first two graduates who were uh, residents of Hensonville uh, immigrated with two or three other families to Liberia in 1859 as missionaries and settlers. So there's a lot of history of this community of Hensonville 
uh, shaping and influencing our, our history here in Pennsylvania, the, the country, uh, and the world in that Lincoln University uh, was the first um, historically black university degree granting here in our country. So members of this church and this community were instrumental in the founding of that institution. And as I have found that um, they sent at least 18 of their men to serve in the Civil War. When you started asking around at Lincoln University about Hensonville, did that name mean anything to them or is it forgotten? Well, Hensonville has disappeared from most contemporary maps. Um, you're right, the, it, when I began asking questions, people said, well, kind of, but not really. But no one could really answer or sufficiently answer my question about the relationship of this church the remaining artifact, if you will, of Hensonville to the institution. So I was on a mission from that point forward. Is the church owned by the university? It is not. It is not. That church uh, was there long before the institution was founded, but it was because of this community that the founders of Ashman Institute, later Lincoln University, decided to place it there. Um, now, most of what was known as Hensonville for clarity, Hensonville, Lincoln University, straddles two townships, Upper and Lower Oxford, along Baltimore Pike. And over the years, indeed, some of the uh, land that was owned by residents of that community uh, became absorbed by Lincoln University. Who was Henson? Emory Henson was the first known um, African-American man to purchase land there. Uh, and it became known as Hensonville, again, straddling two townships, Upper and Lower Oxford. Where did the people come from who lived there? Why would they have moved there? Well, the early, early settlers were free people. Uh, some were self-emancipated, some were manumitted. Self-emancipated, you mean they ran away? Uh, they uh, acquired their freedom, <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, many of them, from what I've been able to determine, immigrated from um, Harford County, Maryland, and Cecil County, Maryland. And some came over from um, Wilmington, Delaware. Now, in the years before the Civil War, was there a lot of back and forth across the uh, Mason-Dixon line for African Americans, or, or once across in the North, did they stay in the North? Well, it seems to me that the, the primary families that um, composed the Hensonville community were there uh, and very supportive of each other, as I indicated. Many of them were free at the time that they settled there and began to purchase land. Uh, concomitantly, they were active in assisting freedom seekers who either would settle there, but for the most part, based on some of the oral history uh, that I've been able to document, many of them moved on to Philadelphia and points north to ensure uh, their safety because there was the 1850 uh, Fugitive Slave Act. And there, again, is evidence in the documents that slave catchers were in the area seeking uh, runaway or self-emancipated uh, people, as well as kidnapping free blacks. There's, you know, you know it's a well-documented case of the Parker sisters who were free 
and working in the household of their employer when they were kidnapped and taken south. We did a program on a book about the Parker sisters yes. on this program. Yes, intriguing story. So if it's the 1850s or so and you're walking down the main street in Hinsonville, what would you see? You would see um, a farming community, um, modest homes, and you would see Hosanna Church and its intriguing cemetery. Were there businesses that the locals would run? Well, at that time, there may have been small shops or, or places of business, but the main um, city would be uh, Oxford, so you would move onward. It's called Jenner, it was called Jennersville Road, um, from Jennersville to Oxford. So you would see post offices, you would see uh, some modest shops, but you would be heading into either Jennersville to pick up your your uh, mail from the post office. Uh, there was there was the Red Rose Historic Inn was there at that time, and on into Oxford, which was more of a semi-urban uh, community. What would the population have been at its peak? Well, I don't recall the population of Oxford, oh, but, but Hinsonville, but Hinsonville uh, there were about 30 families that made up Hinsonville. All African-American? Primarily African-American. How did the, the white neighbors feel about having this community there? Did they get along with their neighbors? Well, um, they're, they're, I think there's a mixed history there. Um, we know that the Quaker families were the ones most willing to sell land to um, people in Hensonville who wanted to purchase. Uh, they, they hired many of them, so they had, uh, I, I think, amicable relationships. Uh, around the time that Ashman Institute, Lincoln University, was being organized, there's clearly, um, you know, vitriol from some of the uh, white residents of the area uh, toward this effort to establish a school, uh, an institute for free men of color. So there, it, there was a mixed environment, but clearly supportive and safe enough for these families uh, to, to exist and prosper. How did Ashman Institute get started? Well, how much time do you have? <laughs> so Ashman Institute was chartered in 1854, and there's a wonderful documented story about a man named James Ralston Amos, who was a resident of Hintonville and a trustee of Hosanna Church. Highly literate, uh, at that time was an itinerant minister within the African Methodist uh, denomination, and who desired to extend and expand his education. He wanted to be a minister and a teacher. And so he approached Reverend John Miller Dickey, a Presbyterian minister at the time there in Oxford, about founding um, an institution for men like him. Uh, Reverend Dickey was highly impressed with um, uh, James Ralston Amos and wrote to uh, a, a couple of seminaries, including Princeton. So here, here's a brilliant man of God who uh, would fare well in your program, but they turned him down because of his, his race. So there was a wonderful story about James Ralston Amos walking approximately seven miles from Hensonville into Oxford on a daily basis to study, to continue his studies with John Miller Dickey. 
and he would pray in a grove on a stone, which became his altar, that somehow there would be um, an institution of higher learning for men like him. And fast forward a couple of years, by 1854, uh, Ashman Institute is chartered, and that stone, that prayer stone, that James Ralston Amos used was placed into the foundation of the first building, Ashman Hall. What became of James Ralston Amos? Well, he enrolled there in 1856, and he graduated with his brother in 1859, and they and three other families, including theirs, uh, immigrated to Liberia, which was the mission of uh, Ashman Institute. Um, to serve as missionaries, where he and his brother served. When did it become Lincoln University? In 1866, uh, after the Civil War, uh, the revered General Oliver Otis Howard, Union General, who also served on the Board of Trustees of Ashman Institute, urged men at Lincoln University to move onward and upward, he says. Uh, the uh, traditional um, objective of Ashman Institute to serve as missionaries in Liberia um, is still laudable, but I want you young men to go south and help rebuild the communities that the recently freed African Americans will need. I want you to go south as educators, as, um, as ministers, um, and as business people. So. That's um, when the institution aligned, or really realigned its mission to serve that purpose. So it went from educating preachers and teachers to um, community builders. Do you know when Ashman Institute first got started, where they got their money? So in 1856, they began enrolling students after being chartered, and their primary donors were uh, people who supported Liberian colonization, the um, immigration of former slaves and recently freed slaves to Liberia, which was founded for that purpose. So the early donors and supporters, which included the Pennsylvania Colonization Society, uh, provided both funds and in-kind support uh, to uh, Ashman Institute and their graduates. I again think it's uh, fascinating to see how members of Hosanna Church also supported um, Ashman Institute. Uh, James Ralston Amos talks about in his letters how he mortgaged uh, some of his uh, belongings to support Ashman Institute. He was also sent out by uh, John Miller Dickey to, um, on a speaking um, endeavor, to rally and drum up support for the new institution. Was, was the idea of colonization popular or unpopular among African Americans? Well, it was a controversial issue. Um, you know, there, there were people on both sides. Uh, Hosanna Church, for the most part, did not promote colonization, but was supportive of colonization meetings that were held there to discuss that, along with abolition. Uh, and certainly there were several families from that community who joined the Amos brothers uh, 
in their immigration to Liberia. Well, all this we've been talking about isn't really about the, what your book is about. So when you decided you wanted to write about Hinsonville, when you learned about it, why did you decide to take the focus on the, uh, the residents of Hinsonville who enlisted in the Civil War? So this book is actually, as one of my readers um, reminded me, a sequel. My first book, uh, published in 2014 by Lincoln University Press, On Africa's Lands, The Forgotten Stories of Two Lincoln um, educated missionaries in Liberia, right? So I've focused on th those um, pioneering uh, brothers and missionaries and educators. But in the course of, of, of researching that, I kept walking around the cemetery, this atmospheric cemetery, and noticed a number of uh, burials for Civil War soldiers. So I recognized USCT, United States Colored Troops. I said, oh, yeah. And I, and I at that point, had not seen so many um, s black Civil War veterans buried in the same place. And it occurred to me that these men and their families seemed to anticipate that history might forget them. So in placing those headstone monuments, they place themselves into historical memory, uh, prompting my questions. Well, who are you? What was your relationship to this community, this university? What were your experiences? What did you have to go through to find the answers to those questions? Well, in the absence of any um, primary or comprehensive documents, I read their, uh, their tombstones, which indicated the regiments in which they served, which led me to their pension files, which was just a treasure trove of information. So it includes um, their physical descriptions, of course, when they uh, enlisted, the battles that they fought in, um, when they were discharged, some information about their families and their origins. Some of them had been formerly enslaved, and they mentioned that um, as, as a part of documenting their identity and their places of um, residence. So the uh, pension files were very helpful. Uh, eventually, I would um, return to the other primary sources, such as census records, uh, death records, uh, some marriage records, and occasionally uh, some land uh, deeds. Um, divulged information about their lives. So I was attempting to, in effect, resurrect them to enable them to continue telling their stories. You know, what were their experiences before, during, and after the Civil War? Who were they? These were men who witnessed and shaped, really, and transformed our democracy. Who were they? And what were their experiences? You said there was uh, how many families, like 30 families? About 30 families made up the Hensonville community. And you focus on 18 who volunteered. So that's a pretty big percentage of it the is. town. It is. It was remarkable, remarkable. Why would they have volunteered? Well, I, I think the context tells us these were men who were part of really a pioneering community of free people who were actively involved in early civil rights, namely abolition, their, um, their community of faith, which centered around uh, Hosanna Church, was actively involved in helping people 
who were uh, seeking their freedom. Uh, these men also witnessed the founding and the growth of, of an institution of higher learning for free men of color in their community. So they were witnesses to and participants in major social movements. And I, there is a, a prevailing, I think, spirit of independence and, and sense of agency in these people who owned land and built their community around uh, a core of faith. What was the age ranges of the volunteers? Most were um, around 18. Uh, I would say between 18 and 20 when most of them enlisted. I think I read you had one, uh, it was Abraham Stout was Stout. Stout was 15? Well, so he may have been slightly underage, I recall, but again, eager to enlist and prove, like many of them, uh, their sense of uh, patriotism and a desire to end slavery. How did they figure out who volunteered and who didn't because they had to leave enough people behind to keep running the farms while while those 18 men were gone. I didn't get around to asking them that, but <laughs> there were several generations at that time. So mm. these were men who were some formerly enslaved, some born to parents or grandparents who had been enslaved. So they, this is at this point really second and third generation. So there's a, a you know a vibrant community uh, of multiple generations there. So you have your list of volunteers in there, and there are yes. three members of the J family. Yes. So yes. that would have meant there's three fewer young J men to work the farm. Well, it's a large family. <laughs> it was a large family. Yes. So a pioneering family, by the way. So what kind of records uh, did, do church records still exist? None. Virtually none. So I again, I had to go to some primary sources, and luckily there were some historic, uh, historical newspapers that documented uh, meetings at that church of the abolition societies, of uh, colonization societies, uh, some um, uh, famous people who came through, including Frederick Douglass, who was quite active in the area. Who, he spoke there and was well acquainted with this community of Hensonville. Where did you find the newspapers? Well, uh, some of them are available online. There are some databases, some historical newspaper uh, databases, but the uh, um, Chester County Historical Society in Westchester, one of my favorite places, most favorite places in the world, has a very extensive uh, collection of uh, historical newspapers. Um, capturing the social, political, and, and religious life of many communities within Chester County. So if, if you're living in Hinsonville and you want to sign up, you want to enlist in uh, the Army, how do you do it? Where do you go? And, and once they say, okay, you're in, what do they do with you? Okay. Well, the, uh, once the executive order establishing the United States Colored Troops was issued, uh, a number of uh, recruiting uh, stations and offices were set up throughout Chester County, including Westchester. Many of them um, enrolled or enlisted there in Westchester, as well as uh, here in Philadelphia, particularly for the 54th uh, Massachusetts. So between uh, Westchester, where most of them enrolled, uh, and Philadelphia. So 
Of the 18, 11 of them, I believe 11, trained at the former Camp William Penn, which was located in what's now Cheltenham Township in the community of Lamotte, named in honor of abolitionist Lucretia Mott. Okay? So Camp William Penn was the first federal, really the only federal uh, training uh, camp for uh, U.S. colored troops. And most of them trained there before they were dispatched. What kind of training would they get? Well, they received military training. There's um, evidence that they were also um, encouraged to attend uh, uh, church services. Some of the men were able to utilize their time to gain literacy. There is a stream of um, inspiring um, and respected speakers. Uh, Harriet Tubman spoke to the troops. Uh, Frederick Douglass, you know, you know, would hang out there often. Uh, William Still, known as the father of the Underground Railroad, uh, set up um, a shop there. So there was a, a lot of activity uh, to engage them in training and, and discipline as well as you know, edification, I think. If you go to the site of Camp William Penn today, is there anything to see? Well, there is. Uh, the remaining um, entry gates are there, and there is a group, um, Citizens for the Preservation or Restoration of Historic Lamotte, operates a museum, a Camp William Penn Museum nearby, which includes artifacts and information uh, from that period. So were they being trained to be frontline troops as opposed to kind of support troops? Well, they were trained in infantry and combat, and many of them saw combat. Many of them were involved in high loss, high loss uh, encounters, and suffered injuries and illnesses resulting from that service. You mentioned the 54th Massachusetts. What, why Massachusetts, and what was it about that, that unit? Well, Frederick Douglass, who rallied uh, President Lincoln to um, support the enlistment of black men uh, in the um, quest to reunify our, our country, um, had, um, had a special interest in the 54th Massachusetts because before the order was issued, the state of Massachusetts formed, uh, what I believe was really the first state in the North to form a regiment for uh, black soldiers. So Frederick Douglass was very active in promoting the 54th Massachusetts before the general order uh, was issued for other regiments. And he uh, ordered or encouraged two of his own sons <laughs> to enlist, which they did. And he was on his feet. He was here in Pennsylvania, in Delaware County, Chester County, uh, Lancaster County, urging black men to enlist. So what is the history of the 54th Massachusetts? What, what, where did they go during the war? Well, um, they saw uh, combat. They are well known uh, for their um, valor um, during the uh, assault on Fort Wagner in 1863, which was, again, high loss, a high loss battle. And one of the 18, Albert C. Walls, was our first casualty in that battle. You know, the back cover says that they, uh, they fought at um, 
Fort Wagner, South Carolina, which was memorialized in the film Glory. Glory, that's correct. That's them. Six of our guys were there on the front line. They were in it. At a, at a, as a historian, how close did the movie get it? Rather accurately, uh, I think. Um, and I um, particularly admire the use of um, uh, Colonel Shaw's uh, letters and his particularly home and I think it's pretty accurate uh, in, in terms of showing you know the the, the, the the intense fighting and really high risk involved there so these men went in knowing that many of them would not make it miraculously five of the six from Hensonville did make it back but not always well or whole, which was the case for the men of the 54th Regiment as well as the others who trained at Camp William Penn. When they were in battle, did they fight side by side with white soldiers? Well, they fought, I, I'm not sure, but I, you know, they fought nearby in close proximity, absolutely. When they were, at, did all the men from Hinsonville train at Camp William Penn? Is that okay. where they were routinely sent? So, um, 10 or 11 of the 18 trained at Camp William Penn. Uh, Robert uh, G. Fitzgerald, who's made his way to uh, Massachusetts to enlist in the 55th, by the way, Massachusetts, and the six others trained at 54th, Massachusetts. So really 11 of them trained at Camp William Penn. There's a couple other units they were in. How would they they decide, or the Army decide, who went into what unit? Well, I think it, would, it had to do when those units or regiments were formed mm. uh, and at the time that they enlisted. You mentioned Robert Fitzgerald. Will you tell me about him? Because uh, he, he has a, a pretty significant role in your book. Well, yes, he does. He was an avid diarist. Um, he um, was born in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, to a father who was biracial and who had been enslaved by a Quaker family. His father married a white woman and began to raise a family and the family emigrated to Hensonville in the around 1852 with the intention of enrolling Robert at Ashman Institute. And when he was able to, he did enroll. In fact, he was uh, there, a student at Ashman Institute, when he decided that he was going to abandon his studies and uh, enlist uh, in the Army. He returned after his discharge and resumed his studies at Ashman Institute. And he had a, an occasion to hear Again, General Oliver Otis Howard admonish uh, him and other Ashman uh, students to um, go um, move onward and upward. upward. Just read an excerpt from this, which, which sure. uh, uh, provides the context for his motivation to um, to continue his service after the military service. Yes, yeah, so it was onward and upward. As Douglas had urged black men to fight for the Union, following the war, civic, religious, 
and political leaders urged black men to go south to serve the newly freed men, women, and children. Ashman was renamed Lincoln University in 1866 to honor the Emancipator President and redirected its Liberia-focused mission to American-focused uplift. In addition to seminary training, the university curriculum began to prepare its male students for vocations that included teaching, law, and medicine. At commencement that year, Major General Oliver Otis Howard, director of the Freedmen's Bureau, who became a member of Lincoln's Board of Trustees, urged students to move onward and upward in elevating their race, both within this country and in Africa, but particularly in this country. Robert, Christian Fleetwood, and more than 30 Lincoln graduates and alumni who served as USCTs listened keenly to the revered, battle-tried general who lost his right arm fighting the war to end slavery and was now funneling funds into schools to educate newly emancipated people. So Robert had already made up his mind and was preparing to travel to Amelia Courthouse, Virginia to open a Freedmen Society school. So he was sponsored by the Freedmen's Aid Society of Philadelphia and he initially went to Amelia Courthouse, Virginia, where he literally built a school and formed a class and began educating uh, the recently freed people. And he says this, he was so inspired. He says, these people learn more rapidly than any school I ever taught. And if you approve of it, he's writing back to the society, I will remain here until the 1st of November. They insist on staying, and Mr. M has made arrangements to teach our Latin and Greek lessons twice a week. So he's talking about how he's finding you know, this renewed inspiration as an educator. So he teaches there for some time. He moves on to North Carolina, where he establishes uh, Freedmen Schools, and his whole family eventually relocates there. Here's where it's interesting. Robert G. Fitzgerald um, remained in North Carolina and settled in Durham, North Carolina, where there is a family plot. He kept a very detailed diary of his experiences at Ashman Institute on the battlefront. He describes how his, um, the troops would go in, uh, capture the Confederate rebels and free slaves, but he was always feeling that his life calling was to be an educator. So, and so he settled there, raised a family there, and his granddaughter, Polly Murray, the renowned civil rights attorney, activist, and writer, visited Hensonville in the 1950s, documented some of the family's experiences there, and Robert Fitzgerald, former Durham, North Carolina, home, just last year was designated a National Historical Site. It is now the Pauli Murray Center for Social Justice, and the late Pauli Murray said that her grandfather's uh, inspiring life um, made her the activist, lifelong activist that she is. So it's interesting. So he leaves and, and continues his work in North Carolina and is now a National Historical Site. What's it like reading his diary? 
vivid. He uh, was an enthusiastic tourist. He was quite assiduous in, in, in uh, documenting the details of landmarks, of geographical uh, uh, locations, and also of um, really ruminating about how he as a man of God, he was quite uh, pious, <laughs> uh, would serve his country as a soldier and as a teacher. So it was quite interesting and it, it helped me to round out his story and get a sense of uh, his values and what he thought were his most meaningful contributions to American society. Did he write uh, much while the war was going on about he, his experiences? Yes, in he did. Yes, he, he again. He, he spoke about where they were located, how he was feeling, uh, uh, seeing some of his comrades being shot down or injured, and again, looking in the faces of people that the armies were able to free from bondage was quite inspiring for him, even when he wasn't sure that his own life. Uh, would be spared. In fact, he says, he wrote home, if I get shot, send my trunk to Elkton Station, which was the uh, station near his home in Hensonville. Were there any of the other of the 18 who kept diaries? He was the only one, the only one. So I'm, I, I was able to reconstruct their lives and some of their experiences um, from uh, some of the letters that they wrote or statements that they provided for their pension benefits. Uh, some of the statements that their um, witnesses or people who supported the application um, wrote and submitted as a part of that process. Were any of the letters that they wrote home, uh, are any of the letters still surviving? Well, there were no letters written home as mm -hmm. far as I know, with the exception of Robert Fitzgerald's diary. Most of the letters that I've seen, in some cases their own handwriting uh, and the handwriting of their spouses are in uh, located within their pension files. So, uh, how many lost their lives in the war? There were two. There were two who died in combat. Well, Albert C. Walls there in South Carolina. Hugh Hall, who happened to be his uh, brother-in-law, died in uh, Barrancas, uh, Florida from wounds. The rest of them made it back alive, but again, not healthy or whole for the most part. All of them suffered for the remainders, for the remainder of their lives uh, from service-related injuries or illnesses. You refer to, is it George J., one of the three J brothers? They said he wasn't quite right after he came back from the Well, war. George J., yes. Um, context. The J brothers are, or were, so our characters follow us around, so, were grandsons of the patriarch uh, Patrick Walls, who settled in that area. They, they came from um, a very close, tight-knit family, very supportive. So George J., again, uh, survived as a member of the 54th Massachusetts, survived that horrible, horrible battle, made it back, resettled in <laughs> Hensonville, but he uh, was most likely suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. He just went in a different direction. He, uh, in early 1870s, along with several other um, um, friends, I suppose, 
uh, was arrested for larceny, uh, had sort of a crime ring going, and uh, he was convicted, unfortunately, and sentenced to 11 years in Eastern State Penitentiary, which at that time was still practicing solitary confinement. When he um, served his time, he was released, but he was not well. Uh, his family, back in Hensonville, took him in, tried to care for him, but he checked in and out of what was then the Chester County Asylum for the Insane, insane as it was called, several times before being permanently committed. And he spent the rest of his life institutionalized. So he spent really another 27 years um, in Norristown and then eventually Embryville Hospital. How many of the, the 18, you said two of them lost their lives. How many of them went back to Hensonville and just resumed their lives? All of them. That's interesting. So th they were uh, living there and associated with Hensonville before the war, and all of them returned, those who survived, to Hensonville. And 11 of them chose to be buried there. You said um, in the book that a couple of them were at uh, Appomattox for Lee's surrender? Yes. Um, several of them, actually, uh, were there, a part of that army of the, um, in, in Virginia that cornered Robert E. Lee's um, army and forced their surrender. So imagine that. They're witnessing the abolition of slavery. And two of them were in uh, Abraham Lincoln's funeral parade. Okay, so um, two were in Abraham Lincoln's Washington, D.C. parade, the members of the uh, 41st USCT actually led that uh, procession. And members of the 24th at Camp William Penn, which was the last uh, USCT regiment to depart, um, led the procession here in Philadelphia. Now, after the war was done and they, they, they came home, did people sit down with them and, and get them to tell their stories and write down their stories, or did you find any of that? Well, no, that, that's where my job began. I had to find a way to resurrect them. Again, in the absence of letters and details, how would I uh, resurrect them to tell their stories? How'd you do it? Well, um, First of all, I wanted to make sure that their names and their experiences were committed to um, public or historical memory. And um, it was important that they not be uh, anonymous and certainly not forgotten. So I really wanted to, if you will, uh, effect a, a certain kind of restorative justice, right? Because if we did not reconstruct their social histories and commit their names to historical memory, they would be forgotten, at best, a footnote. How many did you find photographs of? Well, the only surviving photograph is of Robert Fitzgerald, who appears on the cover of the book. There are no known photographs of any of the other Hensonville heroes. The other gentleman who appears on the cover is the well-known uh, Christian Fleetwood, who is not among the Hensonville heroes, but was a resident of Hensonville. He and Robert Fitzgerald were classmates and friends. Um, he also, while a student 
at Ashman, then Ashman Institute, worshiped at Hosanna, and has documented in, his, in letters that he taught Sabbath lessons there. He was also the roommate of two other Hinsonville men who enlisted, Louis Ringgold and Stephen Ringgold. So he was intimately involved with and a part of the Hinsonville community during his tenure as a student at Ashman Institute and well known by all of these men. You did find a lot of records having to do with pensions. Yes. For, can you explain that, how the pension system worked? You know, who was entitled to one? How much money did they get? Well, well, it, it didn't work very well for uh, black Civil War veterans. In fact, many of them uh, spent an inordinate amount of time trying to secure equitable pensions from the time from that the war ended well into uh, you know, 1900s. In fact, Frederick Douglass and other stakeholders convened um, conventions to address the difficulties that many of the black Civil War uh, veterans um, encountered in securing their um, pension benefits. So in the 1800s, so between 1865 and the late 1880s, the average monthly pension uh, was about $5 a month, which was a paltry amount even then. So, and remember, many of these men had been farm laborers. They were uh, primarily um, engaged in uh, farming work. And as they grew older, they, their ability to continue that rigorous farming uh, labor was diminished. Concomitantly, many of them were suffering with illnesses and inj injuries related to their service. And there, this was not uncommon um, at all. So there was a cottage industry of sorts that had emerged where many of them had to hire attorneys uh, to you know, intercede and help them process their applications for pensions. And there is evidence that there was, were, were some discriminatory uh, practices f um, on the part of the, the Pension Bureau even some of the doctors who treated them who seemed uh, somewhat reticent to certify certain illnesses that would have uh, entitled them to higher or increased uh, pension benefits. Oh, they would get more uh, pension benefit if they had been injured? Yes, and over time, uh, along with other ailments, they would, would apply for increased um, monthly uh, benefits. What kind of documents did you find for that? I mean, was it interesting going back and forth? It was, it was intriguing. Uh, again, in the pension file, so that process, once someone applies, they're required to have a physician certify that condition that might make them eligible for either a pension um, uh, payment or increase. And there's a rather, um, a rather sad case that I think um, demonstrates uh, what often happened with these men. Uh, it's I, Isaac Amos Hollingsworth, who went by the name of Amos Hollingsworth, who enlisted in 1864, served successfully for a year, was honorably discharged, and did not file for pension until 1891. But he was very ill. So between 1865 
uh, when he was discharged in 1891, when he filed, he was suffering from this recurring problem of diarrhea, which was common um, among uh, Civil War soldiers. But he um, was not able to secure a pension until well after 1891. You know, he reapplied, it was denied, and he eventually uh, died in 1906, but suffering from a number of ailments, including this acute uh, diarrhea. Did you, did you ever find records where, where you felt like justice was done, like they were denied it, they persisted and, and ended up triumphing? Or was it always kind of a frustrating story to follow? Well, it was it's a very frustrating and at times harrowing <laughs> uh, story to follow because what's consistent with these pension file applications is it's not enough to survive, okay? Um, you know, they were aging, their bodies were breaking down, and they ended up having to hire attorneys, again, spend more money uh, to try to secure equitable payments to, to survive. Uh, two died in what was called the poorhouse. Um, it was very sad. Lewis uh, William Ringgold, who made it back, but was suffering from bone scurvy, which um, ultimately uh, killed him and he was barely able to survive or work and ended up uh, living in the Chester County Poorhouse, which he and uh, several others were using as a retirement home, essentially. You also write about widows' pension benefits. What were widows entitled to? Well, usually a little bit more than their husbands received. Really? <laughs> Once the husbands <laughs> expired, they were able to uh, secure uh, benefits that helped them survive. And again, many of these widows returned to or continued to work as domestics, and some of them died in the poorhouse. Were you able to find any living descendants of any of the residents of oh, Absolutely. There are a number of the descendants of the Walls family, which is one of the pioneering families of Hensonville who um, convene annually at Hosanna Church uh, for a family reunion and I've connected with them and uh, exchanged information and there are descendants who are finding me so they are they are attending some of my author talks and signings they say, hey by the way I'm a descendant of the J let's figure out how I'm related uh, they're connecting with me on my um, my author page on Amazon as well as Facebook so there, there's still quite a few around who are uh, intrigued with and very excited about this documentation, which is helping them uh, to, you know, cull together their um, uh, family histories. Did any of them have stories that were passed down through family legend or, or any memorabilia? I mean, something that the soldier had yeah, during the war? Yeah. So, some of them are in possession of discharge papers, some of the original discharge papers, which they uh, revere and they're quite uh, they're proud of, but mostly uh, oral history, some fragments of, 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 of their oral history that, that was passed down. But this work seems to help gather a lot of that information, and some have promised to go look through boxes to see if, in fact, there are some um, details or artifacts that have been overlooked. How often in your research did you just have frustrating days where you just felt like you were hitting dead ends everywhere you went? Well, there weren't very many dead ends. The, 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 the challenge for me, uh, as I uh, immersed myself in these men's stories 
and uh, visited some of the places where they uh, lived or were institutionalized. Uh, it, uh, it, it took about two years to, to walk through each of them and try to do justice to um, who they were and what they you know, intended to do through serving in the Army as well as resuming life as, as civilians there in a, a society that still did not extend equal rights to them. That was more frustrating. Frustrating or in some ways fascinating, but they persisted. Okay, they persisted. These men, again, their bodies were broken, they were ill, uh, unable to work full schedules at some point, but they persisted in trying to work and support their families. Did they expect to be accepted by white society as a result of their Civil War service when they came back home? Well, some of their uh, comrades have documented that they expected to um, be regarded as people worthy of equal rights. Um, Robert Fitzgerald uh, makes an interesting notation in his diary about the continuing war after the war, where he uh, had encounters um, hostility. Uh, when he's in North Carolina, the Ku Klux Klan is threatening him and his family because he's establishing or has established schools to educate uh, people of color. Uh, and he talks about that. And, uh, but there's that enduring uh, belief in um, what it meant to be an American. And they were patriots. And, you know, never relinquish that, right? Even when they faced danger and, and inequity, they persisted. And they left those monuments, see, so that we would remember them. Well, uh, the monuments there, if you walk through the cemetery there, how many uh, are all the, the veterans of the war marked with their graves mm -hmm. are marked? Mm -hmm. So there are 10 verified burials in Hosanna. 10 are visible. What does that mean? Meaning their headstones survive. There's one missing. Uh, but, they're, but they're verified in terms of the records, 11 burials of Civil War soldiers, Hensonville's heroes, there in the cemetery, and 10 have still visible uh, headstones. I have to ask you about something. You have a photograph in here of Old Hellman's Tavern, later Nottingham Tavern. What is the significance of that? Well, that's where one of the, uh, again, I was attempting to uh, place these men in uh, the context of uh, local, regional, and state history. It's where one of them lived, and he mentions Hellman's Tavern as um, uh, his place of uh, domicile where he uh, um, would retrieve his mail. And it's interesting that uh, that tavern, uh, part of it sits, faces Maryland, or sits on the Maryland line, and part of it uh, sits on Pennsylvania which again reminds us of that, that line of demarcation between freedom and slavery and how close to that line these men lived and returned to after the Civil War, attempting to negotiate their way uh, in a society that was still reticent uh, to extend 
equitable rights to them. Who was the last surviving veteran? So our readers will have to get the book to find out. <laughs> well, let me ask you one more thing about the Harmony Grove School. Can you talk about Harmony Grove School and what was significant about that? Well, Harmony Grove School, again, was um, a school that was established for the children in the area of what became known as Lincoln University Village. Okay, So in 1866, I believe, the United States Post Office uh, established a post office, of course, there, and the, there was a train stop called Lincoln University Station. And near that intersection, a school was established uh, to educate the um, children of what became Lincoln University Village. Okay. And initially, it was an integrated institution, not fully integrated, so white children were on one level and black children at another level. And some of the children of the Hensonville men attended that school. And that building still stands. It's a converted church there in Lincoln Village. So again, another overlooked, forgotten landmark. And you say Abraham Stout's son, he's one of the veterans, he attended that school. Yes. And uh, one more, what is the GAR? Grand Army of the Republic which was essentially an advocacy group formed for veterans, black and white, after the Civil War to, among other things, advocate for equitable pensions, right? So uh, today I hear uh, people say, particularly veterans, America has um, a spotty history in terms of uh, how it treats its veterans. There's always a need for advocacy. There were segregated, however, um, uh, chapters of the Grand Army of the Republic. So when you walk through and you see a GAR medallion uh, the, that's usually placed there by uh, a veterans group to show that that person buried there was a Civil War veteran. This is your second book? It is. Do you have a third one in the works? I do. And it's nearly completed. Uh, it um, uh, chronicles my um, now 20, 30 year, 20, 25 year uh, quest to reconstruct my family's journey from slavery to freedom. And it covers about 250 years of my family's um, experience in relationship to American history. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Cheryl Renee Gooch. She is the author of this book, Hensonville's Heroes, Black Civil War Soldiers of Chester County, Pennsylvania. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.